0: have had a fantastic week at VBS this week. Can you tell? They did a great job. You're going to hear from them again in just a little bit. I'm so thankful for the opportunity that we've had to just minister to so many boys and girls this week. We've had fun, we've eaten well, we made amazing crafts. We're exhausted, but God is good. Amen. God is good. So, thank you for those of you that are the parents of these blessed people up here. Thank you for trusting us with them this week. We are delighted that we've been able to spend this much time with them. We are glad that you're here today. Welcome to worship at First Baptist Church. We are so glad that you're here. And if you are new with us, we are especially glad that you are here. Would you... Take a few minutes as the service goes on today and find the connection card in your order of worship. It's perforated. Would you just fill that out and let us know that you were here, how we can pray for you? Our staff prays for you every Tuesday at 1:30 and pa- and turn that into the offering plate. We would just love to get to know you a little bit better. We want you to meet our pastor and his wife at the end of our service as well out in the foyer. We have a gift for you for being our guest today. It is a copy of his book The Privilege of Worship. And uh, they will just enjoy meeting you so well. I want you to hear from our kids even more. The theme for our week was in the wild. And this is the song that goes with that. join us as we participate together in the ordinance of believers baptism
1: what a joy it is this morning to be able to celebrate baptism today and we have one of our new members caitlin lacoy coming to profess her faith in jesus christ as lord and savior through believers baptism today Caitlin's known the Lord for some time, but she felt like she needed to make that public in following the Lord's uh, command. And it may be that you're here today, and you have a similar need in your life to profess Jesus Christ through baptism. Maybe you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior years past, but you've never followed through with baptism. And so I'd encourage you to pray about that and to seek the Lord's guidance and then to be obedient to Him in baptism. Caitlin? Caitlin, have you professed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes, I Amen. Well, based on your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, I baptize you, my sister in Christ, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Amen. Okay. May we continue to worship together, celebrating the wonders of the Lord today. Kevin.
0: Amen. What a great way to start our service today. If you are the parent of these blessed children up here on stage, would you stand right now and wave your hands big so that they can find you and that they're not going to stay up here all day through lunch? Amen? We don't want that happening. And as they make their way quietly down, maybe, (laughs) doubt it, Amen. What a great day to celebrate all that God is doing. We celebrate the ending of VBS and we celebrate the beginning of a new series of our pastor preaching on the the prophet of Elijah that just shows how good, powerful, personal, and strong God is today. So we want to acknowledge that today. Would you stand with us as we sing Days of Elijah? the Lord for that today. We want you to see what took place this last week. Be seated and turn your attention to the screens. One of the wonderful things about VBS this week is that generations of all ages encountered the true story of Jesus. And one of the things that we realize, even today, as we celebrate what God did, is that we need the Lord. Would you say that with me? Lord, I need you. Say it with me. Lord, I need you. Let's sing that truth together today. Because we need the Lord because he is strong. He is our personal God, strong God today. Stand together. Let's worship together.
2: Lord, I know.
0: my song to write
1: Pray, dear heavenly Father, you are Lord of all, and we do thank you, God. We do need you, dear Lord. Lord, we thank you for this week. We thank you for VBS. We just pray, God, that your word has developed in the minds of these young kids today, that they would become to you. Now, Lord, this time of our worship, we give of our tithes and offerings. We ask you to bless this and bless it around the world. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: One of the most meaningful songs that we sang this past week is one that we introduced to you last week. It's called Worthy of All Praise. Worship with us as we sing it.
1: Lord, how grateful we are for a powerful week at Vacation Bible School. Lord, we thank you for the lessons that were taught. We thank you for the time that was spent building relationships. Lord, most of all, we're grateful for the four children that came to faith in Jesus Christ and those others that are seeking out more information. Lord, we pray that you would kindle the fire in these young believers, Lord, and help them to be used in a mighty way for your kingdom service. Lord, thank you for all those that invested time this week in investing in our children. We pray your blessings on them. And thank you, Lord, for just the great work that you did. We give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes we do not notice the subtle shift that is happening around us until it is too late. In just one year, from 1930 to 1931, the Nazi party rose to political prominence in Germany. Their leader, Adolf Hitler, presented himself as someone devoted to the German people and who was following God's will. Hitler played on German sympathies and national hopes, promising to lift the shame Germans felt after having lost the First World War. And as a result, the average German was only too willing to take a chance on him. However, one theology professor could see trouble on the horizon. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He had a sense that Hitler would lead the German people into far darker places than they could even imagine. And Bonhoeffer was one of very few voices speaking against it. Uh, Bonhoeffer saw the wolf in sheep's clothing. He could tell that Hitler was faking allegiance to Christ in an effort to eventually destroy the church of Christ. Uh, Bonhoeffer warned his fellow Christians of Hitler's intentions. He spoke boldly. He wrote widely. And when war broke out, he only intensified his work. He was watched by the Gestapo, He was imprisoned and finally tortured when it was found out that he had been part of a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. On April 9th, 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed by hanging. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. For Bonhoeffer, that was the only way to live So it was for the man to whom we turn our attention to for the next few weeks. Today we begin an eight-message series on the prophet Elijah. And I'm entitling this series, Elijah, Prophet of Power and Humility. Elijah is a fascinating prophet. He has an amazing spiritual prowess and courage. In fact, commentator P.R. House writes, without question, Elijah is one of the most distinctive and diversely talented individuals in the Bible. He is prophet, preacher, political reformer, and miracle worker all at the same time. And so in some ways, Elijah is kind of untouchable. Yet in so many ways... We can identify with him like no one else. For Elijah got afraid. In following God's will, Elijah got it's discouraged. He even got depressed. And his house says, Elijah was no superman. I rather like that about Elijah because I'm no superman and neither are you. But God calls us just as he did Elijah to live for him, and to push back the powers of darkness. And like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Elijah saw the dangers of the day. He saw the paganism and the idolatry that had taken over the land, and he was courageous to stand against it, even when the king and queen were its biggest proponents. In our own nation, things are changing culturally, and spiritually and not for the good many feel that the rate of change has kind of ramped up in the last decade but in reality we've been heading this way for quite some time listen to what Philip Keller writes the temper of the time is to turn our backs on God Everywhere there are those in positions of power and prominence who would have us repudiate righteousness and reject the laws of the Lord. Scorn and ridicule are heaped upon those who seek and serve God. The Christian is becoming an object of contempt. Steadily. Surely, insidiously, we are a people given to preoccupation with sex and the perversion of this great gift. We are becoming addicted to affluence and greed for gain. We revel in revolt and violence. Corruption and moral decay are destroying the foundations of our society grounded on deep reverence for God and His laws. We are beginning to behave as if God really did not exist. He's totally ignored in most of our educational systems. He's regarded as irrelevant to our age of scientific technology. We are so completely preoccupied with our own sophisticated plans and programs, so caught up in our own petty pastime and pursuits that the purposes of God for us are completely bypassed. Now, doesn't that sound like today? Yet Philip Keller wrote these words more than 40 years ago. We didn't get here in the last decade. It's been coming for a long time. And now we could be beaten down by that. We could be discouraged. We could pull away. We could give up. Or we could have hope and we could pursue victory. And I propose that we can have hope and we can pursue victory through God and victory in his name. Because that's what Elijah did. To understand Elijah, you have to understand Elijah's time. And so we begin the story of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 and following, as we learn about the days of Elijah. In Elijah's day, politically, things were good in Israel. In fact, King Ahab succeeds his father with the kingdom in the best shape it's been in over 50 or more years. But the writer of Kings is not concerned about political prosperity. The writer of Kings evaluates the kings of Israel and Judah based on their covenant loyalty to God. And so he tells that the spirituality of the time was the worst it could be. And so we could say it was the worst of times, and it just kept getting worse. We re- begin reading in 1 Kings 16:29 and following. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Now that is saying a lot, because there had been a lot of evil. To understand the times, we've got to turn back the clock about 175 years. For over 100 years, Israel lived under the reign of just three kings, King Saul, King David, and then King Solomon. They were great military men. They were political leaders who built Israel into a unified nation from a group of 12 unconnected ragtag tribes. At the end of Solomon's life, however, civil war broke out after Solomon's son Rehoboam ignored godly counsel from the elders of Israel and in an effort to make himself great allowed his pride to not only destroy him but to divide his kingdom. Division came into the kingdom, and the nation split into a northern kingdom of 10 tribes, Israel, with its capital eventually in Samaria, and a southern tribe made up of just two a southern kingdom made up of just two tribes in Judah, with its capital in the ancient capital of Jerusalem. From the beginning of the division, Jeroboam, who was king of the new northern kingdom, faced a problem. Jeroboam could not have his subjects returning to the temple in Jerusalem in the rival kingdom of Judah to worship. And so to solidify his power and to unite his own kingdom, he had to sever his people's loyalty to Judah and Jerusalem. Therefore, in both the north and south of his kingdom in Israel, he set up new places of worship. There he built Altars there, he placed golden calves on those altars and he told the people, Here are your gods, O people of Israel. A nation founded on godlessness will maintain that. And for the next 200 plus years, the northern kingdom had 19 monarchs. Every last one of them was godless and wicked. The nation continued to spiral down the spiritual drain until Assyria finally destroyed them in 722 B.C. Now we back up and consider what happened to the southern kingdom. They fared a little better. They had 17 rulers for well over 300 years. Eight of those kings followed God, while nine were wicked. But the wickedness eventually prevailed, however, and Babylon came in and destroyed the nation of Judah in 586 B.C. With both the northern and the southern kingdoms destroyed, the nation went into what's known as the 70-year Babylonian captivity or the exile. And eventually the southern kingdom was revived when men like Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel and others returned from the exile and rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the city of Jerusalem, rebuilt the walls and restored worship to the one true God. Now, during all of this period, from the time of the division of the kingdom all the way to the return of the people back to Jerusalem, during all of that period, because of the wickedness of the kings and of some of the people, and to prepare the people for and to guide the people for their return, God sent the prophets to call both the rulers and the people back to God. And all of those prophets that are grouped at the end of your Old Testament fit back into this time in the history of Israel. They all had different times, all had different jobs, but they were to call the people back to covenant loyalty. Now, we had different types of prophets. You had the writing prophets, which we have in the uh, their scriptures recorded for us, but there were other prophets who didn't write anything, and Elijah's one of those. We don't have a book written by Elijah, but we do have his story told here in 1 Kings. And Elijah was born about 30 years after the division of the monarchy. He grew up the, under the reigns of the five of the first six evil kings of the northern tribe of Israel. But it was under Ahab's rule that we read about here that God called Elijah to step forward as a prophet because as the writer of Kings says in verse 30, Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So what had Ahab done that was so extremely evil? Well, the writer tells us in the next few verses Ahab not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time... Hael of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the work of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Joshua gives that proclamation, that prophecy in Joshua 6, verse 26. And now, all these hundreds of years later, it has come to pass. The author notes one major problem with Ahab that came about as a result of one major move. The major problem was Ahab committed the sins of Jeroboam. Now Jeroboam's that very first king of Israel who set up those separate places of worship for his people. And so Jeroboam's sin was the promotion of idolatry and the ordaining of priests to serve in the high places that he set up. During his 22-year reign, Jeroboam intentionally turned the nation away from God. In fact, if you flip back a page or two to 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 9, you have the summary of what he did. 1 Kings 14, verse 9, You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have provoked me to anger and thrust me behind your back. Sound familiar? Sound just like Ahab. Jeroboam was followed by his son Nadab, who did the evil things his dad had done. He was killed by the next king, Basha, who was also evil. His son assassinated him and seized the throne. He was then murdered by one of his military generals who took over the kingdom for seven days before he died in a fire. And then he was followed by Omri, Ahab's dad. The writer of Kings says that Omri sinned more than all those before him. First Kings 16, 25. So for nearly six decades, assassinations, immorality, conspiracy, and idolatry prevailed. And Ahab, well, he just took evil to the next level. Generations will do that, you know. Where one generation compromises, the next generation turns away those things that are inconsistent in your life will be non-existent in the life of your kids. Be careful where you stumble because that's where your kids will fall. A little more than 50 years had elapsed since the once unified nation had stood at the pinnacle of its power under Solomon. But now the nation had gone from righteous rulership to rampant evil. Ahab's major problem of following the sins of Jeroboam, while no doubt learned from his dad and those that went before him, it was exacerbated by one major move that Ahab made, and that was he married Jezebel. In none of the narratives of the previous six kings of Israel do we find out the name of the king's wife. But here we do. That's because when it comes to evil personified, few people in all of history compare to Jezebel. She was so evil that when we teach about spiritual warfare, we talk about a Jezebel spirit. Jezebel was raised amid pagan rituals that were associated with Baal in Sidon, which was located to the north of the Sea of Galilee. If you think about Palestine, you've got the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. It was north of Galilee up there. So the Wizard of Oz had the Wicked Witch of the West. Well, think of Jezebel as the Wicked Witch of the North, right? And we're going to learn more about her as we journey through Elijah's story. But for now, just know that she was pure evil. And her evil influence spread to the throne. Ahab was what is known as a hen-pecked man. Jezebel wore the pants in the family. She held the power. Since Jezebel ruled Ahab and Ahab ruled Israel, Jezebel ruled Israel. And Jezebel's evil influence spread into the hearts of the people as they turned away from God and to the false god, Baal. Now, Baal was... the Canaanite god of rain and fertility. He was believed to control the seasons and the crops and the land, and his female counterpart was Asherah. And worship expression included appalling rituals, all kind of vulgar acts, and as a result, Jezebel and Ahab wallowed in lewdness and led the people to do the same. Baal worship had been practiced in the region of Palestine, long before the Israelites ever arrived. Long before the conquest of Joshua and the taking of that promised land. But the actual worship of Baal did not find its way into the hearts of the Israelites until it was introduced and promoted by Jezebel through Ahab. Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in his capital city of Samaria, He had an Asherah pole made, and all of this, as the writer of Kings says, provoked the Lord God to anger more than any of the wicked kings before Ahab had done. Philip Keller says that religious, moral, and social rot were consuming Israel The entire body and life of God's own chosen nation were decaying and dying under the influence of inner moral corruption. It was a desperately dark hour for Israel. And so, enter the prophet Elijah, the man for his time. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. You know, God often uses people you've never heard of to do things you'll never forget. And that was the case for Elijah. He was from Tishbe, a remote, unsophisticated village in the... uh, kind of rough country to the east of the Jordan River. Elijah, it could be said, lived so far out in the country he had to go towards town in order to hunt. There you go. But somehow, <laughs> somehow God found this man and he called him to serve him. And we don't, we, don't, we don't know how. We don't know when. We just know that he did. Elijah just, boom, appears here in chapter 17, verse 1. Just coming out of this wilderness to speak to the king and queen. While no one had ever heard of Elijah, God had. And perhaps even his parents knew that he would be used in a significant way someday because Elijah's parents had given him a name that captured his message. Elijah's name is from three words in Hebrew, Elijah, which means my God is Yahweh. And when Elijah burst on the scene, his message is clear in his name, but just in case they miss it, he states his message for them. As Yahweh, the God of Israel lives whom I serve. Notice two parts of his message. One, the Lord God of Israel lives. He's not dead. He has not gone away. You're not pushing him aside. You've not run him off. You've not scared him away. God is very much alive, active, and at work right here, right now. And how do I know? The second part of his message, I stand for him. Elijah was going to stand up and speak for God. He would not back down. He would not break. Now, the way to know a true prophet is whether or not his word comes true. And so while prophets were foretellers, speaking for God much more than they were... Um, or they were foretellers much more than they were foretellers. They spoke for God more than they predicted things. Elijah uses a foretelling to show that he is a true teller, And so Elijah takes on Baal at the source of his power, which was fertility, agricultural center, rain. And Elijah says there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Notice the severity of this prophecy. No dew or rain. Even in times of drought, there can be dew, but there won't be at this time. Moreover, it will be for the next few years. Not for a little season, not for the few months, not for the summer, but for years. Since Baal worshippers believed that their God made rain, Elijah declares a drought that will only be broken at his command to prove that Yahweh, not Baal, is the one true God. It was a potent challenge. Elijah delivers it and leaves. You look at verses 2 and 6. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kirith ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kirith ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ra- ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the <laughs> brook. God provides for his prophet while Elijah waits for God to carry out his word. And there by the brook we're going to leave Elijah for today. But as we do, I want to make one focus point. And that is that God seeks out key people for key jobs at key times. Elijah came from a town in the middle of nowhere. And as we've said, God often uses people you've never heard of to do things you'll never forget. And they are the key people for key jobs at key times. Even Jesus came from the backwater town of Nazareth, of which Nathaniel asked, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? God needed a bright light to shine in the dark place of Israel. And he found that light in Elijah Elijah needed courage to stand up to the evil and powerful king and queen. Elijah also needed humility to listen to God and to do what he commanded, no matter how strange. And thus God, God called Elijah the prophet of power and humility. Elijah was not from a special lineage or from a significant place. He was just a regular guy from a regular family, in a regular place, but he walked with God. Therefore, God sought him out as the key person for a key job at a key time. If God used Elijah, God can use you. What are some ways that God wants to use you? What are some ways that God is using you? What's he doing in your life? Maybe you say, well, I don't, see, I don't see God doing much in my life. Maybe you feel like an unlikely candidate for God to use. But do you realize most people who have been used by God did? Moses complained of his stuttering, and yet he spoke for Israel before Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Jeremiah thought he was too young. Isaiah felt he was too sinful. Woe is me, I cried, for I live among a people of unclean lips, and I'm a man of unclean lips. But God used all of them, and he can use you. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things, and we need some extraordinary things today. Our culture is running headlong into godless paganism, what is clearly wrong is being called right. And what is clearly right is being called wrong. We are on a dangerous downward spiral and something must be done. However, I have hope. Because all we need is some courageous and humble people to step up, to stand up, and to speak up. We need children, teenagers, men and women who will stand on the truth of God's Word, who will live out that Word in their daily lives, who will trust God to bring about transformation in our time because they believe God can do more in a moment than we could do in a lifetime. We need people who will recognize the subtle shift and do something about it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer did, but not everyone did. Martin Niemoller, one of Bonhoeffer's friends and colleagues, only saw what was happening much too late. And he wrote a now famous statement about it. First, they came for the socialist, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionist, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, And there was no one left to speak for me. Like Elijah, like Bonhoeffer, like so many others, will you be a person for our time? Will you step up? Will you stand up? Will you speak up? Will you say, my God is the Lord and he surely lives? And will you show that in your own personal life, in your family, and in your workplace? And then, if God calls you to another stage, may we stand firm on the Word of God. My God is the Lord, and He surely lives. May we pray together. Lord, we are thankful for the example of boldness and courage and humility in the prophet Elijah. And we look forward to journeying through his life story over these next few weeks. And Lord, I pray that as we do, you would just write his, the truths of, of your word revealed through him on our hearts. That you would transform us, that you would prepare us for the day in which we live. Lord, I pray for those today in this room who've never trusted you as their Lord and Savior. And I pray, God, that today would be the day of salvation, that they'll realize their need for you. You want to do incredible things in their lives, just as you did in Elijah's life. And so, Lord, I pray that you call them today. There are others who need to seek your face to be able to have courage in the circumstances that they're in. Maybe at home, maybe at work, and I pray, Lord, that you would help them to seek you today and that you would fill them with the power of your Holy Spirit for the calling that you've placed upon them. Lord, speak to our hearts in this time of invitation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.